0: This is Monday Morning QB, September 28, 2020. I'm Askia Muhammad. Today on the show, what's next in the case of the shooting of Breonna Taylor? The father of Jacob Blake receives death threats for coming to the aid of his son, defunding the police, politicizing public health, and a look back at this generation's jazz poets. All that and more stay with us. National protests have erupted in response to the grand jury decision regarding the case of Breonna Taylor, a 26-year-old black EMT shot in her apartment by police in March. From Louisville to New York City to Oakland, California, thousands have been calling for increased police accountability and fundamental changes in law. Amara Evering reports.
1: Last Wednesday, a grand jury in Kentucky Came to a decision regarding the shooting of Breonna Taylor, a 26 year old black woman killed by police in her own home after they were provided a no knock warrant. Sergeant Jonathan Mattingly, Detective Miles Cosgrove, and Detective Brett Hankinson shot 32 bullets in total, striking the apartments of her neighbors and the body of Breonna Taylor six times. So, what were the results of the case? Detective Brett Hankinson charged with three counts of wanton endangerment for potentially threatening the life of Taylor's neighbors. The others, whose bullets actually struck Taylor, received no charges. After the ruling was released, Taylor's family held a press conference in Louisville. Attorney for the family, Ben Crump, spoke on the grand jury results.
2: Wanting endangerment wow. for the white neighbor's apartment oh that lived God. next to her, but no wanting endangerment for the bullet tray that went into the apartment of the black neighbors mm. above her apartment, mm. yeah. and no wanting endangerment for the bullets that went actually into Breonna mm. Taylor's apartment. Mm-hmm. No wanton murder charges for the bullets mm. that mutilated Breonna Taylor's mm. body. Mm. It's like they charged the police for missing right. mm. shooting bullets into black bodies, right. but not charging the police for shooting bullets into black mm. bodies. Mm. Right, Where that happen at? Yeah. Mm.
1: Republican Attorney General of Kentucky, Daniel Cameron, whose job was to adequately represent the evidence of this case to the grand jury, has been under scrutiny for possible bias. Bianca Austin spoke on behalf of Breonna Taylor's mother, stating that the injustice of Taylor's case goes beyond the six bullets that struck her daughter, or even Daniel Cameron's representation of the case.
3: Cameron alone didn't fail her. But it ended with the lack of investigation failed her. The officer who told a lie to obtain a search warrant failed her. The judge who signed the search warrant failed her. The terrorist who broke down her door failed her. The system as a whole has failed her.
1: If you were to trace back the series of events that led to Taylor being shot six times in her home by plainclosed officers, you'd find a detective submitting a request for a no-knock warrant because of a suspicious package. Detective Joshua Janes had an unfounded hunch that a package received at Taylor's residence could be tied to an ongoing narcotics case. Jaynes submitted a request for a no-knock warrant to Judge Mary Shaw, along with four other requests. Each had similar, undetailed reasoning stating that these high-risk warrants were needed, quote, due to the nature of how these drug traffickers operate. All requests for no-knock warrants were approved by Judge Mary Shaw, and officers conducted the raid soon after. And on March 13th, Brianna Taylor's boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, assuming that an intruder had entered the apartment in the middle of the night, shot his gun, injuring an officer. 32 bullets were sprayed back and soon after, 911 received a call from Walker as he yelled over the line quote, "I don't know what happened somebody kicked in the door and shot my girlfriend" Ben Crump spoke on the risk associated with no-knock warrants
2: These no-knock warrants are dangerous mm-hmm. and it was foreseeable that somebody could be injured a citizen our police, or a third-party innocent bystander like Breonna Taylor, who lived in that apartment.
1: No-Knock search warrants which permit officers to forcefully enter homes have been regarded as dangerous for civilians and law enforcement alike, especially in Kentucky, where the law allows citizens to use force if they believe they are in imminent danger, a belief that Kenneth Walker himself claimed he had. The use of this particularly dangerous warrant grew out of the war on drugs, which disproportionately affected black and brown communities. Though this type of warrant has been prevalent since the 80s, they've often resulted in the shooting of police officers or the death of civilians, making them difficult to receive or simply outlawed over time. In Louisville, there have been long building tensions between black residents and police for years for discriminatory search practices where police claimed to be looking for narcotics, something that the three cops who shot 32 bullets in Taylor's apartment complex were essentially doing, though no drugs were found. At the press conference, Bianca Austin, representing the written words of Brianna Taylor's mother, identified her daughter's death as a reflection of a systematic issue.
3: I was reassured Wednesday of why I have no faith in the legal system and the police in the law that are not made to protect us black and brown people. But when I speak on it, I'm considered an angry black woman. Mm. Mm. But know this, I am an angry black woman. I am not angry for the reasons that you would like me to be. That's right. I'm sorry. But angry because our black women keep dying at the
2: hands of police officers Mm. and black men.
1: And Ben Crump echoed these sentiments.
2: It follows a pattern. It follows a pattern, Bianca, of the blatant disrespect and marginalization of black people, Mm -hmm. but especially black women in America who have been killed by police. Because part of Brianna's legacy will always be. Just like Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown raised America's consciousness level and attention to Black Lives Matter, Breonna's legacy will be that Black women's
1: life matters too. For many, Breonna Taylor's case reflects a long history of inflicted violence on Black women in this country without perpetrators being held accountable like in the cases of Atiana Jefferson, Katherine Johnston, Kayla Moore, and Ayanna Stanley-Jones, who were all killed in their homes by police. Ranging from 92 years old to just seven, all were unarmed like Taylor, a trend found among many black women who are killed by police. Activist Tamika Mallory stated at this press conference that this is who she is fighting for. We
4: are prepared to fight until our own death, if it is necessary. Not just for her, but for every single little Brianna Taylor that is watching us.
1: And as Mallory stated, little Brianna Taylors continue to be endangered around the country without national change in laws. Laws that continue to permit things like no-knock warrants, discriminatory search practices, and a lack of accountability for police misconduct. The father of Jacob Blake... Whose son was shot by police last month spoke on this issue.
2: If we do not change these laws, they will still continue to treat us like we are animals. My son and Brianna were human
1: beings. Though a law banning the use of no knock warrants called Brianna's Law has been passed in Louisville, Kentucky residents are calling for widespread change. Kentucky House Representative Attica Scott came to the podium at the press conference fresh from jail after being arrested at a protest. She described how she wants to change law in Kentucky.
4: Our law goes a little bit further than the local law. Not only does it end no-knock warrants across Kentucky, because black folks everywhere, mm. uh, in yes. Appalachia and rural Kentucky, Thank you. Uh, but it also demands that when you do issue a warrant, that you must have a body-worn camera and it must be turned on and it wasn't. or you will be disciplined, including termination. Thank you. It also mandates that we have an alcohol and drug test for all officers involved in deadly shootings and violent incidences. So like Tamika Mallory said, we are coming to every county in Kentucky. We have 120 of them and we're going from the hood to the holler. We are going to every county to make it very clear that your state representative better sign on to Brianna's law for Kentucky or in two years they are gonna be gone.
1: But it doesn't only stop with the passage of this law. Ben Crump with attorney Lenita Baker and Sam Aguiar have been calling for the release of all documents that had to do with the grand jury proceeding.
2: That's why we are standing here today united in solidarity, declaring and demanding that he release the transcripts of the grand jury proceeding. (laughs) so we can know if there was anybody giving a voice to Breonna Taylor. Mm. Let's say it from the heart, so not only Daniel Cameron can hear us, Mm -hmm. but Breonna Taylor can hear us from heaven. what we want Daniel Cameron, the Kentucky Attorney General, to do. On three,
1: one, two, three.
2: Release the transcripts!
1: And Lenita Baker also called for a special prosecutor to present charges on behalf of Breonna Taylor if Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron did not do so already. Daniel Cameron, who has recently accepted an endorsement from the Kentucky Fraternal Order of Police, stated, quote, To the men and women in blue, I pledge to be your advocate and your voice every day. But Baker claimed that for our communities to truly heal, black voices need to be heard too. We
3: know that we need healing. We know that this city needs healing. And we're willing to do our part. But you have to do your part. And until you start doing your part, we won't heal. That's right. We're here. We're here when you're ready to listen to us.
1: But for Breonna Taylor's mother, healing today is still a work in progress.
3: I hope you never have to know the pain of knowing your child is in need and help and you're not able to get them. Mm. I hope you never hear the sounds of seeing someone cry and beg for your child to get help, and she never receives help. Those cries was ignored. I hope you never know the pain of your child being murdered 191 days in a row. Mm. Mm. Tamika Palmer. Mm.
1: 199. Today, that's how many days have passed since Brianna died. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Amara Evering.
0: The wounding of Jacob Blake by police in front of his three small children in Kenosha, Wisconsin last month, like the murder of Breonna Taylor in the middle of the night in Louisville, Kentucky, only draws further attention to the two systems of justice in this country, one for white people and the police and another injustice for black men and women. Blake was shot in the back at point-blank range seven times in front of his children, ages 3, 5, and 8. A former Madison, Wisconsin police chief has been tapped by prosecutors to independently review the evidence in the case before a final recommendation on whether or not to prosecute the cops involved is prepared. Meanwhile, Blake's father, Jacob Blake Sr., reports that his son remains paralyzed, and that he now has received death threats, as if his son's shooting had taken place in Ku Klux Klan territory in the Deep South, not in the far northern United States.
5: At this time, brother, he's at a uh, spinalist specialist center uh, base for rehab and traumatic injuries to the spinal cord. So he's, uh, he's in good hands. He's His spirits are picking up. Um, but of course, you know he's still from the waist down, unable to move.
0: Is it a chance that he might be able to regain the use of his legs? And is it a good one? It's very unlikely. In
5: their in their view, it's
0: very unlikely. But we know, Allah knows all. There have been rallies and protests supporting his son all around the country. How does that help this national support? How does that help him?
5: The national support brings the attention to the fact that there are two justice systems and that we have to merge these two systems for them to work the way that they're supposedly supposed to work.
0: When we uh, look at the map, Wisconsin is the polar opposite to Mississippi, but what happened to your son in Kenosha reminds us of the KKK in the deep South. And the way
5: we were treated
0: in Wisconsin
5: reminded me of Mississippi and Alabama and Louisiana and North Carolina and South Carolina. You can go on and on and on. That's the way we were treated the last month.
0: Give us an example of some of the things that happened.
5: Uh
0: well, every brown man knows
5: the gazes you get and the looks that you get. And we received to get a dollar for every uh for every gaze and There that we would see. We were staying in Wawatosa, and they had a uh, an article in Wawatosa that they want Wawatosa to stay white. So you can imagine when we went to Walmart or had to go get things elsewhere out in the community. You can imagine how we engaged that on a on a whole. There, there, it wasn't, we weren't, we did not feel welcome. But there were those that went out of their way to make us feel welcome and apologetic. But that wasn't the whole, you know, that wasn't the majority that was sprinkled in between. The younger, the younger, um, the younger Europeans in that area, were more supportive than the older ones. The older ones, it was like, he got what he deserved. Especially that was the uh, messages that I was receiving when I was receiving the death threats the hate mail. I had a stack of hate mail I had to throw away.
0: Death threats, hate mail, and you're the victim. Hate mail and Yeah. You know, how do I, how, what did I do
5: other than stand up for my son? How did I become a target for hatred? I did nothing but come to the aid and assist of my son, which I'm supposed to do.
0: How does your son's shooting relate to the idea of black lives matter? because he's black and his life matters to
5: me and it should matter to humanity because he's a human being. And in 2020, I shouldn't have to remind people of his humanity, that he's a human. I shouldn't have to, I shouldn't have to tell them that uh, the things that are happening to my people are unjust. They can see it with their own two eyes. We shouldn't have to tell you that Tamir Rice should be able to play cops and robbers in the park. I shouldn't have to tell you that Trayvon Martin could go get Skittles in an the Arizona tea and not become uh, a target. I shouldn't have to tell you that. I shouldn't have to defend my black brothers and sisters continuously we still don't know what happened to that young lady in Texas. It's not, it, I should not have to tell you that they shouldn't go up into someone's house with a no knock warrant shooting when people are asleep. But if you look back in history, it's always been that way. They desensitized society when it comes to brown men and brown men getting slayed by white men. They used to take picnic baskets and spread out of cover and watch them lynch. So this has all become a joke to them.
0: Your family has condemned, uh, what has they've described as a vicious cycle of hate. Uh, which has come against you? Uh, yes. Do you see an end? You said that there some people in Sprinkles have shown some support and expressed some support. Do you see the tide turning, or? Well, there's been more. There's been more than Sprinkles.
5: I, I said there were Sprinkles in Wisconsin. When we left Wisconsin and we went North Carolina, there were more than just Sprinkles there's people that walk up and support in Evanston in Chicago, in Olympia fields, all over and not just little pockets. So once we become more humanized and they're realizing, you know, this, you know, we're not for a long time. They thought we were exaggerating. Or being paranoid to the fact that police were doing this to us. Now they see it. So people are are paying more attention. And we, we must change laws. But we must get young black people to stop thinking that their vote doesn't count. It counts. It counts. We have to get out and vote. That's the only way you change laws. You have to be active. Change the laws.
0: I want to ask you again about the death threats. Have they subsided? Have they cooled off in the month since it's this happened or is it been a steady stream? It's just a steady stream. I have to I move
5: every night. I'm never in the same place because I refuse to bring harm to my grandchildren or my children and uh I, I i continue to move around and it's uh it's been hard on me and it's hard on my children my young son and they, you know they want to touch me and hold me and they need daddy to give them strength and you know it's 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 been it has not been easy brother it has not been easy but mashallah
0: I understand if you don't want to answer this question, but you've were criticized because Minister Farrakhan reached out and offered you comfort. That seems like such a a bitter bitter thing to happen to you who are the victim of something that you didn't invite, you didn't ask for it's It's a
5: shame that in 2020 people are paying attention to who sends you comfort. It shouldn't matter to anyone who sends comfort to whom I receive no comfort from other people that are in charge supposedly of this country. No comfort, no comforting words, nothing. So Who is supposed to reach out to me other than the people that look like me? So when I was criticized, I don't pay attention to the criticism because I love my nation, brothers, just like I love myself. And uh, change must come, brother. Change must come.
0: Brother Jacob Blake Sr., thank you for talking with us. Thank you, brother. Some progress has been made since the movement for black lives kicked back into high gear after the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. The demand to defund police has received particular attention and has even been championed by a few localities, most memorably by Minneapolis itself. But as some politicians try to moderate or walk back support for the demand, we can still imagine a future with defunded cops. Here's Chris
6: Banker-Drowns. Nicole Lewis is staff writer at the Marshall Project and co-author of a June essay titled Support for Defunding the Police Department is Growing. Here's why it's not a silver bullet. The piece details previous experiences of police budget cuts in the aftermath of the 2008 economic crisis and discusses some ways to mitigate unintended consequences. Lewis started by talking about trends in local funding of police and how we got to today, when large cities across the country spend massive portions of their budgets on law enforcement.
7: I mean, I think the best way to answer this question is to look uh, specifically at a few cities um, I happen to be in New York, in Brooklyn, so that's probably the place where I'll start. It's one of the things we pointed out, too, in that story, uh, was that the police budget wasn't always as big as it is now. I mean, when Michael Bloomberg took office, it was fairly large, right? It was, you know, had expanded. Uh, we've gone through this period where crime in New York um, was surging and there was a real effort to get it under control. And, and to do that, the police force expanded. And so the, just the number of people, the number of police um, on the ground expanded. And in terms of police budgets, personnel costs, so just paying officers, paying them overtime um, is usually the biggest line item uh, for most places, most you know, cities. And so as a result, right, the overall expenditure did go up. And so Bloomberg comes in and he says, we, you know, we kind of need to scale this back. The city is much safer than it has been. And so the number of officers declines and the spending declines, but not, not a ton. And then as de Blasio took office, there was this real turn or a shift in interest in terms of community policing. Um, and so this is the type of policing where cops are assigned to their neighborhoods, to beats. You know, they're trying to get to know the people in the community. And that's a really labor intensive style of policing. Um, and so what we saw was that the number of police in New York started to tick back up um, and the costs tick back up as well in order to, to pay those people. And so I'd say that's, you know, that's a sort of broad stroke narrative within New York and also true for many other places. Um, but overall, in terms of cost, policing, spending on policing has gone way up in the past uh, two decades. Police forces are kind of bigger across the board than they than they had been, um, and this is—it's interesting because it's at a time in which crime is at um, actually record lows, right? Historic lows. It's been that case for a many number of years. So there's this kind of bigger question of, you know, what are you getting, or why are we spending so much in a moment where um, crime is way way down?
6: I want you to talk specifically about the problems with the police. Budget cuts in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis—that's a huge component of your piece. And you mentioned a couple cities, but I wonder if you can generalize that more broadly. What were the consequ- like the social consequences of the budget cuts by necessity uh, in 2008?
7: Sure. So, following the Great Recession, many municipal budgets are just spread super thin. They're looking at big deficits. And so in our piece, we looked at a few cities to see, well, what actually happened? This is actually some some prior reporting that um, my co-reporter had done. And to answer the question of, you know, what happens when the police have to operate with a reduced budget? And in many places, the, um, the first sort of step that the police departments took was to reduce the number of officers. And that again, goes right back to the fact that personnel is the largest line item. And so they start to cut down just overall the number of people they have on their force. And then we got into some sort of pretty negative side effects of that. So 911 calls, you know, the number, the amount of time that it takes for someone to respond going up, Um, use of force going up, right? Where police officers are spending more time on call, they're spending more time on the streets and they become more aggressive with the people that they're policing. And so these were these were things that, you know, were not necessarily expected, right? It's hard to say um, what's gonna happen. And I think to be clear, right, to be sort of fair to the recession is that these were cuts that were unintended, right? Nobody necessarily saw this coming and they didn't plan in a thoughtful way. There was no political pressure from the outside to say, you know, we're cutting your budget, but here's what we how how we want you to police differently. Um, and so pretty much all of the experts that we spoke with did say that there there are other choices that um, police departments could make when they're facing budget cuts. Um, but you know, in the two thousand and eight recession, kind of in a pinch and uh, a crunch without any particular research or um, you know, without any um, political pressure sort of guiding them, uh, the move was really just to cut back on officers altogether.
6: Your writing mentions implicit bias training and other reforms like consent decrees. And obviously, these are you know two wildly different reforms, but neither of them take issue with the size of budgets and the way that the defunding demand does. In general, how successful have these reforms that, that don't address funding been in the past and are there consensus ways to improve their effectiveness?
7: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's been very mixed to pr- provide some, some context about what a consent decree is and what it does, right, that allows the Justice Department to come in and kind of, you know, assess a police department. And what they're really looking for in that case is some sort of, you know, pattern and practice of violating folks' civil rights, whether or not there's some sort of clear racial disparity happening, right, some systemic action that's taking place. And so, you know, they come in and, and do reports and kind of make their assessment and make their recommendations and enact changes and act reforms. And in many places, we, we have seen that things have improved in the short term. And, you know, I think that all of the police violence and all of the protests this year have kind of shown us that it's not enough, right, that there's still some deeper issues that, that need to be addressed. I think when I think about You know, Black Lives Matter organizers, community organizers, um, just people on the ground, uh, expressing a lot of frustration and saying, "We've tried it the reformist way. We've tried the body cameras, and we've tried the implicit bias trainings." You know, this is this is exactly why Minneapolis is a great example of this. They have attempted and they have tried to reform that police department for years, Um, and it. You know, the results, right? We saw George Floyd is still killed in broad daylight. And so I think moments like that, I think, really push people towards just notions of trying something radically different, Um, that it, you know, that it breathes a certain amount of impatience with the system as it is.
6: It it really seems like there's a a tension between more reformist approaches that we could put implicit bias training and consent decrees underneath as a category, and more transformational uh, demands like defunding is there a crowding or potential crowding out effect here in which calls for more reformist solutions take energy away from the transformational ones and vice versa? Or is there enough air in the room for both to get discussed and maybe implemented?
7: That's a great question. I mean, it's such an interesting question, right? And and I think one of the ways that I'll answer it is just, it's sort of twofold. So on the one hand, one of the things that I'm most interested in or curious about is about the political will for for any and all of these changes to take place. And so, a professor raised to me just this notion. He was having a um, conference call with some of his students, his law students, who were um, really kind of fed up with the calls for reform for the kinds of you know implicit bias trainings and, and that kind of thing that we just talked about. And you know, they said we've tried it that way, and, we, and now it's time to try it a different way. You know, and part of their argument was that politicians don't have the guts to see those kinds of reforms through and police unions do their part and their work to really undermine those kinds of reforms. Um, And so, you know, he said, well, wait a minute, (laughs) let's back up here. Like, if you think that we're not set up to even get basic reforms through, then how in the world are we going to get this sort of like radical, more revolutionary approach to policing through, right? Like there's a huge tension there. And so I, I just thought that that was very accurate and very interesting, very true. And at the same time, I think that there are small counties across the country that are really wrestling with this question of how to fund the police department. They're in, in some cases they um, in the upcoming election. They're putting the question to voters to say, you know, should we do? Should we change the way that we fund these de- departments? Right? Should we do something different? And so it seems like there is enough room for both. Um, that defund is actually getting some traction. I think it helps that people have consistently taken to the streets to protest, right? That they've put their bodies on the line, even in a pandemic, to show how disappointed and frustrated they are with law enforcement um, as it as it is. Um, and I think that there's a real concern um, that what we're what they might get in its place um, is just more, more training that that doesn't, that hasn't, you know, that doesn't necessarily lead to anything concretely different. Um, And at the same time, I think the bigger picture here is that people are starting to really point out and call into question how much the police actually do in terms of preventing crime. This is a really key component because when I look at the demands of these protesters and of Black Lives Matter and the folks saying, let's defund, I think what they're really talking about is moving money away from a system that is largely punitive. It's largely reactive. Um, In some cases it has horrific outcomes for people, right? People wind up dead when they come into contact with the police. And it's about moving that money that we spend on the system into institutions that could potentially do more to prevent the very crime that they're policing in the first place. I think that that's really the core of, of their argument. And so when you think about it that way, the notion of let's just put more body cameras on cops and let's let the feds come in and do their work actually doesn't do much to address this bigger picture. And so and that's sort of a, a long-winded and broad-winded answer but I think, I think that the, the real question here is about prevention of, of violence and prevention of crime um, and making an investment in communities so that they don't need to be as heavily policed as they, as they are now.
6: So we've seen, obviously, a a mass movement against police brutality and against racist policing crop up in the last six months. Uh, And we've seen a lot of police brutality in response to these protests, shooting tear gas, uh, people losing eyes, getting bones broken, etc. But I'm I'm interested in, in maybe the second order effects that defunding might have on demonstrations, right? If we're seeing this amount of police brutality and police repression of demonstrations now, if departments were defunded in a way that reduced the number of police and and more focused their work, what would the relationship of police to demonstrations look like and, and how would it qualitatively change going forward?
7: Yeah, I mean, another really interesting question. And so I think for that, even I'll back up a little bit and you know point out that in many communities in many black communities and communities of color they've been sounding the alarm for a long time about police brutality and police violence and what the nation has seen with its own eyes you know on tv as demonstrators you know file into the streets is exactly the kind of policing that communities of color have been talking about and warning people about for a long time right that there's just an unnecessary and unprovoked amount of force applied by police officers. And so now I think what we're seeing is that it's begun to to, to bleed out and affect people who maybe never thought that they would be police this way. So that's like one really important thing to to kind of hold in our minds. On the other side of that, I think it's interesting to kind of, to watch some of these clips, you know, whether they're on Twitter, on the nightly news, and to to really watch the police interaction with demonstrators. And it just makes you think like, wouldn't this protest pretty much be fairly non-violent if the police weren't there? Um, You know, there were just so many clips in which it seemed to me like the police were the agitators and the instigators of the violence. I don't necessarily think that uh, the equipment that they own currently is going anywhere, right? So it doesn't change the fact that if they've got tear gas now and pepper balls and tanks in some cases that that tank is not being sold at auction, right? That's not really what we're talking about when we talk about defund or less officers. Um, so there's still a, light, a possibility that um, they could have the, completely the same interaction.
6: Nicole Lewis is staff writer at the Marshall Project. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Banger Drowns.
0: Almost half of the U.S. is reporting increased numbers of new COVID-19 cases as health experts warn of a potential coronavirus surge in the fall and winter. The Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington, a model often cited by the White House, says it projects 371,000 deaths by January 1st. As this crisis deepens, So do concerns that political interference in the response is only making matters worse. Sue Goodwin reports.
8: From the first moments we became aware of the potential of coronavirus to have a devastating impact within the United States, it was immediately inseparable from politics and Trump's presidential ambitions
9: well honestly it's very difficult to know where to begin because it's been so rampant and uh, consistent all the way through the pandemic
8: that's dr peter Lurie, president of center for science in the public interest previously he served as the associate commissioner for public health strategy and analysis at the food and drug administration he along with all of us watched trump promise that the virus will disappear blame China when it didn't, and undermine the best advice public health scientists had to offer. Within all of that are two particular moments that stand out for Dr. Laurie as among the worst actions Trump could have taken.
9: To me, I, I think the endorsement of particular products that uh, he believed would somehow be effective, and best example of that is hydroxychloroquine, followed closely by convalescent plasma, uh, which was another one where You know, they really hyped what is, you know, only limited evidence of effectiveness. That's been terrible.
8: To refresh your memory, under pressure from the White House, the FDA issued emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine and convalescent plasma to treat COVID-19. In August, FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn publicly apologized for overstating the benefit of convalescent plasma, and in July, the FDA revoked emergency authorization of hydroxychloroquine after numerous studies showed it is not an effective treatment for COVID-19 and may cause harm in some patients. More recently, Dr. Lurie, along with many in public health, have grown increasingly concerned about White House interfering in safety guidelines issued from the CDC, and even what we know about the spread of the virus. Earlier this month, Politico reported that Michael Caputo, the Trump-appointed head spokesman for the Department of Health and Human Services, led efforts to meddle with the CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Reports, known as MMWR. These reports serve as the main vehicle for the agency to inform doctors, researchers, and the public about how COVID-19 is spreading and who is at risk.
9: That's the kind of document that's really been considered scientifically sacrosanct. I can tell you about it because, you know, I published there, so I know what their standards are like, and they're famed for being rigorous. And so for them to start messing around with the MMWR, trying to change the language in the first place, in and of itself, that they're involved is a terrible thing. But then there's this pretty clear pattern as to what they were trying to do, and the things they were trying to do were all consistent with the president's overriding message, which was, you know, the pandemic wasn't as bad as people said it was, aerosol transmission, not the, pro- the problem that the, the drug, that the guidance would say, schools might be able to reopen, taking out religious institutions from various restrictions on social gatherings. All of these things are consistent with the president's overall message. And to see a federal agency forced to amplify them is really demeaning and a violation of basic scientific precepts.
8: Keep in mind, most of the employees at agencies such as the CDC and the FDA are not political appointees, and many have built their careers on doing solid science and informing the public. So what is it like to work in this politicized atmosphere?
9: I'm sure what people in the agency are doing are trying to keep their head down, right? That's what they would do. They try to do their job day in and day out, documents to be processed, memos to be written. I'm sure they're trying to do them best they can. Most of what is presumably taking place here and what we've read about is probably not happening on the ground. Uh, What seems to be happening is interference at a a higher level, high within the agency, more likely within HHS or even at the White House. So I think the ground-level FDA employees are going about their business. They're committed as they ever were to... Uh, the role of science in in the regulatory process and in the protection of the public health. But there comes a point where the memo leaves your desk, it moves its way up the chain, and you you lose control of it. That's, I think, where the damage is actually being done. Now, if you're a ground-level person who's doing their work, it is immensely disconcerting to see the kinds of ways in which your work can be distorted, uh, the ways in which government policy can stray from what science would require. So I think people are demoralized. They keep going about their work, but to watch it distorted at higher levels, I I think is just terribly demoralizing at this point.
8: This hasn't gone without notice or without action to bring public science more in line with its purpose. In August, the Center for Science in the Public Interest organized a letter signed by 417 experts in virology, epidemiology, vaccinology, clinical care, and public health, calling on FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn to ensure a thorough, transparent process that will reassure experts and the public that candidate vaccines are safe and effective. Just last week, the leaders of the National Academy of Sciences and the National Academy of Medicine issued a statement warning of alarming political interference in the work of scientists and public health experts contributing to the government's coronavirus response. Also last week, Democrats in Congress introduced the STOP Act, Science and Transparency over Politics, to fight Political interference in the COVID nineteen response.
9: Um, well, I'm afraid it is hard to imagine how it would ever get through the Senate. Uh, that does seem unlikely. And th- there's a role for investigations, and Congress has a subpoena power. Of course, we've seen Trump administration you know, turn its back on that subpoena power at times, and even get away with it. So uh, you know, none of that gives one a lot of hope. But broadly, I think the idea that Congress ought to take a strong role and and take a look at this, see what has been done to federal agencies in the course of this pandemic by an administration that seems more interested in politics than science that seems like a legitimate role for government i don't know that they need an act to do that they can do it now
8: all of this is happening of course during a furious race to develop a vaccine trump continues to say that it could happen before election day and that has scientists across the nation including dr Lurie, seriously alarmed that a vaccine will be approved before the science is in that it's safe and effective.
9: It's worrying to me in part because the last thing we need out there is an ineffective vaccine, right? An ineffective vaccine is obviously not going to help folks, but worse than that, people are likely to believe that the product is going to help them. They're likely to toss away their masks. They're likely to congregate again in football stadiums and bars. And well, you can have an actual increase in the amount of viral transmission as a result of the vaccine indirectly, right, if it's a, if it's a not very effective one. So the politicization of the vaccine approval process is my immediate concern. My long-term concern is about what has been done to the credibility of our public health agencies going forward. I, I like to believe that over time they'll be allowed to go back and do their jobs again and that over time people will come to appreciate what it is that they've, they've been doing for us without much credit for many, many years. But I do worry, though, that uh, it's going to be a lot of work to restore that credibility because the assault from the administration has been relentless.
8: Peter Lurie, president of Center for Science in the Public Interest. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin.
0: This month marks the second year Monday Morning QB has been on the air, and we've been sharing pieces from our archives that still carry relevance to the current day. Today we look back, and at the same time we look forward to the White House with Abidun Oyewele, one of the founding members of Harlem, New York's Immortal Last Poets.
10: He is a classic, super thief, a super liar. This is one reason why Donald Trump is a perfect person to represent America at this time, because this is revelations. This is just like in the Bible. It said revelations, and those who really read the Bible and I read everything, uh, revelations is right on point, because revelations is, is a period when all things will be revealed. America's true face is being revealed, and that face is the face of Donald Trump. He is a classic you couldn't, no no writer in Hollywood could create a script better than the script that we are actually involved with right now. You couldn't have a virus of this magnitude under Barack Obama's watch. It just could not happen. It had to happen under this character, Trump's watch, because he is a virus. He is a human virus. A lot of us have to grow up. A lot of us are gonna have to get rid of a lot of our, our petty ways and start recognizing what we have to become in order to have a successful revolution, our revolution—the revolution that we need—has nothing to do, really, with killing up people, shooting people. Or, or it, our revolution is about healing, and it's about actually pulling our our electrical cords out of their sockets and plugging into each other, and giving each other the power to do what we can do naturally. Because we have gifts, we've got things to share, we've got medicine to give each other, and if we start believing in that we could see a big change in our lives. So our revolution, this revolution that we're going to have as a people that I'm looking forward to and that I'm working towards every day in my life is, is going to be a very, very different kind of revolution. But it will be a revolution only once we have evolved into the kind of people that we want to see and be. Because we still have some folks who are scuffling and struggling to appreciate themselves. They, did, they gave us a big dose of hate thyself. And we've got a lot of black folks who are still suffering from that. We have a whole bunch, Michelle Alexander, I think she was the one that talked about the slave syndrome. It still is in effect. We have a lot of people who have not come from those shackles. They're still caught up. They're still locked up. And But we do have quite a few folks like yourself and quite a few others who cherish the idea of being free. Because what is freedom? A responsibility. And we are ready for the responsibility of taking care of yourself and the ones you love. And that's what our revolution has got to be about.
0: You mentioned Donald Trump. He's written of in a last poet's poem, which I think is so, so apropos because he really epitomizes the white man has a God complex.
5: Right. (laughs) You see, he's a classic. (laughs) He
10: is definitely that. He is. And then I love the ending of that. It's uh, making guns, I'm God. I'm God. I'm God. God's bow backwards is dog. That is so per- perfect. Forget racism and white supremacy. The white man really suffers from an overdose of immaturity. He is very immature. He, all he really wants is attention, attention, attention. And Donald Trump is a classic example of that. He wants attention. He wears his ties longer than anybody in history. And, and most people know a tie is a phallic symbol. So he's just, trying to say, his dick is bigger than everybody else's. He, he's got his hair coiffured. He sits under a sun lamp and he looks orange. He doesn't even, because he, 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 he's trying to have some color. And, and, and he's not a leader at all. He's masquerading. He's got a, a reality show in the White House, basically. He is a ringleader. He is a super uh, con artist. And he's not even a good con artist, but he's good enough for the white folks to put him in charge. And it's it's really a bad, bad joke. And it would be funny. We could really laugh at it. But the problem is that it's tragic because he's a, he, he doesn't know what he's doing and he doesn't have the compassion. He doesn't have the humanity. He doesn't have the blackness in his soul to do what is necessary to make this country really be as wonderful as it could possibly be. So he comes with this line, make America great again. And we know some make America white again, like they lost their white. It lost its whiteness when they put Barack Obama in place. Superficial stuff. Barack Obama didn't do anything, especially black. I mean, he was a good president for everybody. He was concerned about people in the country. So here we got this character, Trump, and he's a character. Uh, And I just would choose not to even put him in the history. It's like this is just a little glitch in time uh only problem that I have is that I think he may get another four years and that's that's kinda of frightening because he's really a problem and he's a and he should be by now the folks that thought people would safeguard their money should see that he's he's also messing with disaster when it comes to doing that because of things that he's doing insane. But yes he he's he's a issue that we all have to deal with and he's a perfect person for the time that we're in. And it's something that we need to think about. And it's not about us revving up or worrying about what he's gonna do. What it should tell us is that we need to come together and do what we can do in spite of him. And anytime we have that kind of obvious opposition, that's when the other forces need to join forces and come together stronger and better than we've ever done before because we've got nobody in the White House. We've got nobody we can send a letter to and say, can you do this for me, please? That's not happening. We've got to make things happen for ourselves. So, um, in a way, Trump could be an answer, a good answer, if we take up the banner and do what we're supposed to do.
0: I hope you're doing all your well Thank you. Thank you for talking with us.
10: Well, thank you for having me, brother. And you have a beautiful day and continue forward.
11: Sun so, up, down, on the corner, uptown. About who's gonna die next? Cause, Cause the, the white, white man's got, got a god complex. complex. Silent niggas scream for help. Hey, help me. Help me. Jim Dale died next, cause the, the white man's, man's got a god, god complex. God. Hey, brother, what's your sport, my man? I got just the thing for you. Only cost 10 and 2. What you gonna do, baby? I got black ones, brown ones, red ones, yellow ones. I even got a white one if you wanna buy some. Yeah, that's right. 258, play it straight. I got it all worked out. Know what I'm talking about. Been reading my dream book. Ain't no way. World, well, the kid gonna get took. Nigga, what you mean? I didn't hit, nigga. You full of s? Lick dies. Uh, now seven. Come on, be nice and hit eleven. Well, what do you know? It's little Joe. Hey, my man got twenty dollars. Say, little Joe don't blow. Ha, ah, baby needs a pair of shoes. Ha, ah, papa's got the funky blues. ah mama plays the crossword in the news. Snake dies. Sorry, nigga, you lose. The line forms to the real lady, and I don't. Cash your welfare checks Cause the white man's Got a God complex But I got 10 babies I ain't got no man I ain't got no choice but to hold out my hand And feed my young ones the best way I can Hey man, what you mean No doubles on blackjack Pump, you better change that rule Cause I ain't no fool You better be cool, Jim, or you'll die next Cause the white man's got a God complex Hey, my man, uh, I want to cop a nickel bag Uh, You say all you got a skag Wow, that's a drag Cause uh, I don't want to cop no dope is death Next cause the white man's got a God complex Hey baby, what's the gig at tonight? Well there's one over at Slicks for faggots and tricks. There's one around Graveyard side of town that'll cost you a pound. But if you go and know what I know, you better pack your piece at least, or you'll die next. Cause, Cause the, the white man's god god got a god, god, god complex. God. Mr. Stein. I don't pay enough rent for this pad to be mine. But you just want to cheat me cause I ain't too kind. Damn, can't you see the place is falling down? No, you can't dig it cause you ain't never around. Damn, I'm so poor. I don't know what in the hell I'm gonna do anymore. Not from this day to the next. Cause the white man's got a God complex. I'm making guns. I'm God. I'm God. I'm making bombs. I'm, I'm God. God. I'm making guns. Machines, I'm God. Birth control pills, I'm God. Kill Indians who discovered him, I'm God. Kill Japanese with the baseball, I'm God. Kill the still killing black people, I'm God. Enslaving Earth, I'm God. Then went to the moon, I'm God. I'm God. I'm God. I'm God. I'm God. I'm God. I'm God.
0: Monday Morning QB is produced by Chris Banker-Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askiya Muhammad. Please stay safe. Mask up. And thank you for listening to WPFW Washington and WBAI New York.